Welcome to a special edition of Museum Chat Live. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. In the spring of 2020, we began to offer history lectures through our virtual museum lecture series live on YouTube. Now, with over 20 lectures, we're happy to bring the lecture audio to the podcast format so that more people can enjoy these fascinating stories. If you want to catch the lectures in full, take a gander at our YouTube channel. You'll find us under St. Catherine's Museum. We will release most of the 20 lectures over the next few weeks, and as we add more lectures to YouTube, so too will they eventually appear here on the podcast. We hope these lectures provide a bit of historical joy and also spark imagination and exploration into our city's rich history. More more lectures are headed your way this fall and this coming winter. For details, please visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, or give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Today's lecture is pretty special as it features our first guests we had join us on the lecture series, teacher Raska Risco and her dramatic arts students from Governor Simcoe Secondary School appear in my discussion of the shipyard strikes from 1861 and how we turned some dramatic history into a play. And Dr. Kimberly Monk joins us to talk about the history of the Shikluna shipyard, along with the thrilling story of the archeological dig she is leading at the yard. Please enjoy the lecture. A few years ago, I had a brief, almost uh, one line reference to a strike at the Shikluna shipyards. I wasn't researching it at the time, so I pocketed it for another time. The story continued to sizzle on the back burner until last summer when I finally had a chance to start digging a bit. The research has been difficult with many dead ends. The research is ongoing and there are many gaps and many questions remaining. However, by poring over countless pages of newspapers from the period, I was able to piece together a sense of this incredible story that has not been shared until now. Before I jump into the story, I want to extend many, many, many thanks to the kind folks at the Special Collections at the St. Catharines Public Library, to local historian Dennis Gannon, who pointed me in the right direction more than once, and also to Dr. Monk for sharing her knowledge and her material with me. Thank you all for your help. In early 1861, skilled laborers at Niagara shipyards organized themselves into the Welland Canal Ship Carpenters and Caulkers Association. They went on strike and demanded increased pay, regular pay in cash, and the first right to work. The strike lasted about five months and resulted in the dramatic destruction of one of the shipyards. 
1861 shipyard strike is significant because it is an early example of organized labor, uh, labor action, which included workers from across the industry. There are few other examples of similar labor action, uh, similar labor, labor action from Canadian history during this time. How did the strike come about? A confluence of trends, events, and pressures led to the 1861 shipyard strike. By 1861, the second Welling Canal had brought significant industrial wealth to the businessmen of Niagara. Niagara was known across the Great Lakes as an industrial powerhouse and dominated early manufacturing, milling, and shipbuilding. Because of the ease of access to resources and ease of transportation on the canal, numerous shipyards were very successful in St. Catharines, including the Muir Brothers, number one, star number two, uh, star number one, sorry, Muir Brothers in Port and Donaldson and Andrew in Port star number two, uh, Louis Chicluna, star number one, and star number two, fancy, in downtown St. Catharines, along with Melanchthon Simpson, one of my favorite names. Um, star number three. And of course, the Abbey Brothers in Port Robinson, star number one. <laughs> I will go back to these map slides if everybody wants to look at them a little bit later. Okay, at their peak between the 1850s and the 1860s, the Niagara Yards employed between 500 and 800 men. Shikluna alone employed 300. Through, their, through the first industrial revolution and beyond, labor under larger employers was reorganized so that laborers were expected to attend and work specific hours under specific rules and participate in an hourly or daily wage system rather than a fee-for-service system, which some specific trades might still have used. The wage system under early capitalists was unpredictable and put pressure on families. Since only men were hired at factories or shipyards, only men could bring income to the, uh, to the significant income to the urban home. When men weren't paid for whatever reason or paid inconsistently, it became impossible for families to survive. Gender roles were reorganized and redefined where women rarely had any opportunity to supplement household incomes as they may have done in the past. Unions became the only source of stability available to workers. To steady cash flow, capitalists use a truck wage system, basically paying their workers on company credit, which forced workers to buy product from their company stores at marked up prices with uh, unstable supply. The truck wage system meant that many workers had no money for household expenses and often kept workers in poverty and in debt to the company. If you aren't familiar with shipbuilding from this time period, I just want to give you a rundown of what skilled workers, uh, what the skilled workers were and who went on strike, uh, what they did on their jobs. First, the carpenters are the skilled workers who built and repaired vessels at shipyards. Caulkers were the skilled workers who undertook the caulking or waterproofing of the ships, along with some maintenance. Steam engine technology was important to shifting the uh, shipbuilding and shipping industries towards interlake and international routes. All the shipyards were capable of retrofits and new builds, but some were more successful at transitioning to steam than others. 
Changes in design and technology put pressure on shipyard owners and cash flow. For smaller yards, it was difficult to meet demands for multiple types of vessels. For larger yards, it was easy to overextend oneself. In early 1861, the carpenters and caulkers at various shipyards, shipyards formed themselves into a union called the Welland Canal Ship, Ship Carpenters and Caulkers Association. Other unions with similar names popped up around the Great Lakes in places like Oswego, um, Oswego, Hamilton, and Kingston. A number of issues combined to force the workers first to unionize in late 1860 or early 1861, and then demand change to their relationship with their employer. First, the shipyards were very busy at the end of, the, at the end of 1860 and into early 1861, and additional laborers were needed to complete the work. A large number of temporary unskilled laborers were brought in to help. These temporary workers were paid in cash. The regular skilled workforce was paid using the truck payment system, where instead of monetary compensation, workers were paid with credit to company-owned stores and supply chains. Now, this wasn't permanent, but often it was sort of, you know, three, two or three months on company credit and then maybe some cash payments, and they'd go back and forth. Very unreliable payment system. The um, workers... Uh, were only to spend their, their credit to company-owned stores and supply chains. And while some lived in company-owned workers' cottages, others who had their own household expenses would need to borrow money from the company or from another uh, source and eventually work to pay off the debt. And it almost became um, a form of indentured servitude. The 19th century truck payment systems notoriously marked up prices and often lacked in supply. So the first demand was to be paid weekly in cash. The second demand, as you can see from this ad uh, or from this uh, newspaper, is uh, for the uh, union men to have a pay raise from $1.50 per day to $1.70 per day. It was obvious that unskilled workers produced lower quality work from skilled workers. But since the unskilled workers worked more quickly, it gave the appearance that they were producing more. However, the union complained that not only did the carpenters and caulkers have to do their own work, but they were then also responsible for fixing the mistakes and training up these unskilled workers, all while being paid the same amount. So the second demand was an increase in pay. Third, because of the high number of orders the yards took on and because of the appearance that unskilled laborers were faster workers, even though their mistakes set the company back, companies back significantly, some union men were overlooked or replaced by non-union men and out of town unskilled workers. So the third and likely the most significant demand to the his, uh, for the history of the labor movement was uh, first right to work for union members. This is significant because it's a huge step in union organization in this period, and really the beginning of the idea of solidarity, joining union members together for a common cause. I just wanna pause here and talk about the early labor movement quickly. The labor movement was very, very young in 1861. A mere 30 or so unions existed in skilled labor trades such as engineering, 
printing, and shoemaking across Canada. Unions or associations rarely included unskilled laborers. Unions or associations in the early 19th century were not what we know them to be today. There was no union office, rarely a collection of dues, and communi communication was limited. The first examples of organized work action of this kind in Canada were the printing strikes that rocked Toronto newspapers, including George Brown's The Globe. In 1853 and 1854, the entire union of printers and typesetters walked out on strike against all the newspapers for trying to reduce wages and flooding the offices with unskilled and child labor. There are plenty of other examples of organized work action, including shoemaker strike in 1859, the Cooper strike in 1860, in October of 1861, both for increased wages. Yet these deals were short term and had to be renegotiated often. Without laws and protections available for unions and workers, owners were free to not only go back on their agreements, but also lock workers out and hire, hire in unskilled labor to keep their shops open. Union solidarity was increasingly important to making the negotiated demands stick. Back to the strike. So in March, 1861, the union communicates their demands to the shipyard owners. After the owners do not accept their demands, the union men go on work action. Unfortunately, the sources do not specify what work action means, but ships were still being built. It was immediately clear that the unskilled laborers could not keep up where the union work action left gaps. And so the owners and the union eventually negotiated a back to work settlement and continued to negotiate their demands through April and May. Again, it's unclear what work action means, but it's, um, they use the word strike in the newspaper, they use the word action in the newspaper. So it's obviously they're back to work, but it's unclear what that, <laughs> what that exactly they're doing and what they're not doing. By early May, it was widely suspected that owners were stalling and negotiating in bad faith so that their current ship orders could be completed and filled. There was no evidence, but this type of suspicion appeared in multiple editorials in this time frame. I should also note that it was unclear how coordinated the shipyard owners were. It seems likely that they were in communication with one another about the strike, but it's doubtful they worked together in a strategic way. It's more likely that one followed the lead of another. At the beginning of June, the union could not come to agreement and the owners began locking out the union members. Since there were effectively no laws protecting laborers or unions, owners were free to dismiss workers and hire in other skilled workers and unskilled, uh, unskilled labor from wherever available. Owners like the Muir brothers took out ads attracting workers from other yards in Hamilton and Kingston, and the unions followed suit calling for solidarity amongst all workers on the Great Lakes. Donaldson and Andrews in Port Dalhousie and the Abbey Brothers in Port Robinson locked out their workers between June 1st and June 10th, and the Muir Brothers, Shikluna, and Simpson locked out their workers sometime between June 12th and June 15th. The strike came to a dramatic and fiery the dramatic and fiery um, uh, head when the Abbey Brothers yard in Port Robinson was completely destroyed by fire on June 13th in 1861. Three members of the union were arrested, Gus Lennon, 
Mike Couture, and John Dorrington. They had been dismissed two weeks prior from the yard for being members of the union. I have yet to discover what happened to them after they were convicted. Despite some public support for the union, the yards were able to continue working at ship repairs and the strike did not seem to have an overwhelming impact on the operations of the yards in Niagara. A few examples of work include the schooner S.D. Woodruff was sent to Shikluna's yard for repairs in April of 1861. The Canada was launched by Shikluna's yard on June 1st, 1861. And that kind of added to the suspicion that um, maybe they're just negotiating until you know, the Canada gets, gets launched. So they launched and then they locked them out. So they, they added to the suspicion. Uh, a really interesting story. The first Maid of the Mist was launched in June of 1861. And when the captain took the new steamer through the Whirlpool and the Rapids on the Niagara River, it was sent to Donaldson and Andrews shipyards in Port Luzi for repairs during the strike. Of course, it needed repairs after that trip. And then finally, John Charles Reichert, the MP for St. Catharines, uh, began facilitating talks between St. Catharines and Toronto for ferry service between the cities. The ship that was going to be the ferry was going to be built in St. Catharines in the autumn of 1861. It's likely that by the end of the summer of 1861, workers were back on the job. On November 21st, 1861, the strike was certainly over. Two men, members of the union, were seriously injured in an accident at Muir ship, Muir's shipyard in Port Dalhousie. Union men had returned to work. So, did they win? The results of the strike are still unclear. However, it appears the union won their demands. In 1863, the owners were looking to reduce the pay of union workers from 175 to 150 per day, suggesting that the union had accomplished their goal, at least back in 1861. The workers at Muir Brothers were on strike again, briefly in October 1863, because that yard wanted to return to the truck wage system. Again, another clue that the union had won their initial demands. Laws protecting laborers and unions did not exist. While the union men were back on the job with a new pay rate being paid in cash and having the first right to work, it would be a temporary, tentative, and tenuous deal that would have to be renegotiated again and again until the labor movement in the 1880s secured more rights for workers and protecting unions. In 1861, uh, the 1861 shipyard strike is significant because it is an early example of organized labor action, which included uh, workers from across the industry, more than one yard owner. There are a few, uh, there are few other examples of similar labor action from Canadian history during this time. There is little to no historical study of these events and only a few primary source documents like the many newspapers we've been reading um, that document or mention the strike in any form. The majority of this story is pieced together from newspapers with many gaps. So while my research continues, many significant questions remain and uh, please wish me luck as I continue my research. While the story of the strike is exciting on its own, a rare opportunity came along that would give the story and my research a little bit more re uh, relevance and urgency. I was taking my time after all, but like most, I work better with a deadline. In October of last year, the drama students at Governor Simcoe Secondary School were looking for a one-act play to produce. 
I've been volunteering with Governor Simcoe's drama program for five or six seasons now, and I, in my own, in my own capacity, and I, I thought that the strike story would make a great piece of theater for the students. So off we went. I finished up my research and shared it with the students, and they began writing and workshopping a play. It was a very rewarding experience, and we were just finished the writing workshopping stage just before March break. We had planned to come back after March break for rehearsals, but you know, everybody, <laughs> uh, the rest is history, I guess. And so we had hoped to present it around actually this time, perhaps last weekend or this weekend. Um, but like so many other important cultural events, we'll have to wait for a safer time. Thanks to technology, however, the students and staff at Governor Simcoe were able to put together a virtual performance of the opening scene of the play, which I am very excited to debut here on tonight's lecture. I would like to thank Raska Risco, Christopher Price, uh, Pierce, sorry, Christopher Pierce, sorry, Chris, and all the amazing students at Simcoe Drama for jumping into this project with both feet. I'm so sad we weren't able to do it in person, but um, maybe, someday soon. I'm pleased to present you, I'm pleased to present to you the opening scene of Strike 1861, starring the amazing dramatic arts students at Governor Simcoe Secondary School. St. Catharines, February 1861. The foundations of our new country are about to be laid. This isn't the St. Catharines our grandparents knew. Where opportunity awaited in the fields of Niagara. The work is different now. The work is harder now. Life is harder now. We begin our story in St. Catharines at the famous shipyard owned by Mr. Louis Shakluna. The most successful yard in Niagara. Yet, I'm not alone in the business. We boast five other yards on the canal. Mere brothers of Port Dalhousie. Mr. Simpson of St. Catharines. Mr. Donaldson. And Mr. Andrews of Port Dalhousie. And the Abbey Brothers of Port Robinson. Together employ over 1,000 1, men who work hard keeping their yards open. Who haven't been paid. Who can't feed their families day after day after day. Right. Eight right. Eight right. Their workers are tired. Their workers are hungry. Their workers are fed up. Yet we face incredible pressure to meet demand. To build the finest ships on the Great Lakes. Amidst rising costs. With a civil war about to erupt in the United States. Pay up and cut. Our workers need to be patient. Give us the work first. Our workers need to be patient. We want a raise. Our workers need to be patient. We need more capital. We need to build more ships. We need extra laborers to help the tradesmen. We'll have to pay the laborers in cash. The tradesmen can stay on credit. There's talk of a union, an association. A union can't protect them. It would be optimal if workers would remain patient. I ask for your patience. Will you please be patient? Please be patient. You'll be paid. Just remain patient. Patience. patience. Ain't right. right. Concessions must be made. 
Eight right. If you still want jobs tomorrow. And so here we stand. With our two sides at odds. Ready for a fight. Boiling for a fight. Um, at this point, I'm going to welcome, uh, well, first of all, round of applause, um, round of applause for the students at Governor Semco, some of who are watching tonight, I think. So, uh, yay. And at this point, I'm going to welcome uh, in Dr. Monk. Um, so I'm going to stop sharing and I'm going to bring Kimberly in. Hello, Dr. Monk. Um, let's see if we can there we go. Hello. Hi, Adrian. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, well, um, thank you for having me. And it's great to see everybody on the chat board. Yeah. Clayton and Belle and uh, Colin and others. So um, thank you for attending this evening's uh, talk. Absolutely. That Absolutely. was great work, by the way, Adrian. I love that. Thank um, you. Yes. Um, we're, we were, the story is fascinating, but also the play, um, the 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 it's just such a great story you know i was that you could be a movie it could be anything right and absolutely so, um the the fire in particular grabs the fire at the abbey brothers grabs people um so it's a it was a anyway someday hopefully we'll get to present the play and uh and uh yeah so everybody cross your fingers for that someday we'll be able to be back in theaters and and that kind of thing Okay, let me introduce you and then I'll hand it over to okay. you if that's if that's all right. Okay, everyone, please welcome uh, Dr. Kimberly Monk. Uh, Dr. Monk is an adjunct professor in the historical and marine archaeology at Trent uh, University and at Brock University. Uh, trained as a maritime historian and underwater archaeologist, which is the, probably the coolest thing to put on your business card. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Monk holds a PhD in maritime archaeology um, from Bristol University, um, a master's in maritime uh, history and nautical archaeology from East Carolina, and uh, a, a bachelor's degree in anthropology from Western Ontario. Uh, research, your research focuses, um, Dr. Monk's research focuses, um, uh, focuses on historical ship types, shipbuilding, which is really interesting for today's uh, <laughs> lecture, of course, and both naval and merchant shipping. Uh, Dr. Monk, Dr. Monk has directed over two dozen underwater field projects across North America, the Caribbean, and the UK. She's currently leading archaeological investigations of a 19th century shipyard in St. Catharines. In addition to di directing maritime research conducted with the historical naval establishment at Penetanguishene. So Dr. Monk, I'm going to turn it over to you. You okay. should be able to share your, um, yeah. your PowerPoint. Okay. And me... I will turn my camera off. So all right. It's just I'll be here, but it'll just be you. <laughs> okay, well, let me know if you can see that. Yes, can you put it into a presentation? I will, yeah. Perfect, I can see it. Hold on, we are just, there we go. Amazing, all, all right. right. Okay, on see with you the <laughs> See you at the end. <laughs> all right, well, the biggest fear I have this evening is, uh, of course, as one of my favorite subjects, um, going over so I'm going to pop the timer on and try and keep to uh, keep to a nice fine timeline. So 
So this evening's presentation um, will be, of course, on our research excavations at the Shakuna Shipyard in downtown St. Catharines, which have revealed the later industrial history of this once thriving port town. The shipyard was the largest on the Canadian Great Lakes, uh, as Adrian's uh, able students um, demonstrated, um, placing that in the forefront of all other yards. Um, it constructed sail and steam vessels from 1827 through 1891. The site and buildings later repurposed to manufacture boxes and baskets for the carriage of local produce. In 2019, a team of academics, field school students and volunteers uncovered over 4,000 industrial and domestic objects, largely dating to the late Victorian and Edwardian occupation of the site. Revert results from the first field season highlight the advantages of multidisciplinary frameworks for interpreting urban sites toward a cohesive understanding of the historic landscape. The site's location also increased opportunities for public archaeology, raising much needed awareness of this forgotten space. The presentation will present a selection of project results and illustrate the historical value of the site. So for those who may, be, who may not be joining us from St. Catharines, just a little uh, spatial recognition. Um, so of course, St. Catharines uh, situated between um, Lakes Ontario and Lake Erie uh, along the, uh, the course of 12 Mile Creek. Um, and um, located adjacent to the current Burgoyne Bridge um, and uh, basically downtown St. Catharines. So when we start looking at the site, one would actually start to think that it's a foreign landscape. I mean, it, it looks like a, a completely isolated, abandoned plot in downtown St. Catharines. Uh, our VP of research at, at Brock had, uh, had related as being akin to uh, walking on the moon. Um, the, of course, the spans of the property uh, and the fact that there hasn't been development perhaps is thanks to the city of St. Catharines. Um, of course, as you can see, the only two buildings on the site presently are the maintenance sheds and the wonderful pink fire training tower that you can very visibly see when you're coming down on the 406. But other than that, you would forget that this was part of a major industrial site. And not only just an industrial site, but of course, um, a particular uh, context of industrial site. Uh, whereby we understand a very unique um, system within the industrial complex. Shipyards were important um, and few opportunities to study them exist um, simply because of development or due to their central location, which meant that they were often uh, bulldozed in um, early uh, development or inundated as a result of changing shorelines. So this will be one of the very first investigations uh, and preferably more complete excavations of a shipyard. There have been examinations previously in the United States, um, but certainly none within Canada and none that um, had such a recognizably uh, important history. Um, so again, we are really taking on not only new methodologies with regard to the archaeology itself, but of course, uh, a, a really spectacular historical site. So, 
But of course, it wasn't the only settlement of the property. And we have to remember that over the course of history, sites were part of a, a larger historic landscape. Um, we have to examine the rivers and the lakes and the arable lands and the connections um, that they uh, provided to uh, communities. Uh, and why basically geography plays such a critical role in understanding human settlement. Uh, to examine, of course, the location of the Shuklana shipyard along 12 Mile Creek um, and its interconnection of rivers of two major lakes um, and the abundance of natural resources that would have been available um, through history. So certainly while the site we are focusing on is primarily what we can see from the historic record, we recognize and appreciate the earlier histories, um, the indigenous histories and the earlier settler histories um, of the locations. So just, I've tried to begin a timeline of sorts and it is a work in progress. I have a very capable historical team who are working ahead to assist us uh, to fill in some of the gaps of that history. Um, yes, I'm looking at you, Belle, and uh, James, James Laird, if he's out there. Um, but part of this history is, again, recognizing this historical environment, um, recognizing certainly that the Indigenous peoples um, were the first settlers of this um, area. And certainly with the retreat of the last ice cover from Niagara around 14,000 years ago, the first recorded humans entered Lake Ontario, the Lake Ontario region, arriving about 9,000 years ago when the environment trans was transitioning from a spruce to a pine forest um, as a result of the change in climate. While few Paleo-Indian sites have been identified in part due to their location along shorelines, which are now submerged, I'm confident that with commitment by various Ontario agencies, we will better understand this important history and better understand the human landscape prior to European settlement. Certainly archeological evidence indicates existence of neutral um, Indian villages in the Niagara region from at least the 14th century. Certainly the abundance of resources is previously mentioned for fishing, hunting and agriculture and its locations at the crossroads of north, south and east, west trade networks resulted in settlement expansion across the peninsula. Certainly the Iroquois Trail uh, located beneath Regional Road 81, St. Paul, um, serving as one of those key connections for Indigenous peoples. So we have more to do to try and reconstruct this early period, but it's certainly important to us as part of the larger understanding of this environment. From settler communities, we start to reconstruct um, some of the individual, in, individuals who uh, owned or leased the property. Uh, John Hayner, who was one of the Butler Rangers, uh, Butler's Rangers, um, who'd returned from the War of American Independence and had um, bought the property in order so that he had uh, area for farming. Um, there's some question as to whether George Adams was the owner. And again, these are some of the more particular details that we're trying to reconstruct, who owned what part of the property and when. Um, but again, we do know that there were a number of settlers on the property, certainly prior to its use um, later as a shipyard. Of course, the first shipbuilder to arrive at the yard was Russell Arrington. Um, and we know that he had at least leased the property from uh, as early as 1828. 
and through to his death in 1837. And of course, having um, uh, launched a number of ships from the site at that time. Cont a contemporary of Russell Armington was um, the Hayward Distillery. And we have recently encountered uh, a number of documents relating to where that was on site. So we have another side project potentially in the future to look at, uh, certainly not shipbuilding related, but certainly regarding the industrial constructs uh, within the site um, uh, perimeter. And of course, the eponymous uh, Louis Chacluna, um, who from 1837 until 1880 uh, would settle the property and of course, when on to build and uh, rebuild a numerous uh, number of vessels. We'll talk a little bit more about him in a few minutes. Um, of course, unfortunately, uh, Louis Chiclunas passing in 1880 resulted in his son, Joseph Chiclunas, taking over the property and going on to um, continue with shipbuilding, constructing a total of about seven propellers and tugs uh, over his uh, period at the yard. Uh, many of them were iron framed and wood planked, um, essentially meaning composite built ships. And uh, ultimately, um, as iron predominated, we see the landscape of the shipyard change and illustrated by the increased number of chimneys for forges and for furnaces. Certainly by unfortunately 1891, Shikuna was out of the shipbuilding business. Uh, I found a few references, however, to him doing some uh, buildings uh, to, and constructing a number of houses in, in places such as Port Coburn. So again, we have a little bit more to dig up on Joseph and what happened to him. Uh, but in any case, he, um, he left the business, leased the property to the St. Catharines Box and Basket Company, who were engaged in supporting the uh, construction of containers um, for the agricultural industries, um, fruit and veg veggies, essentially, from 1891 until 1901, at which point the um, business uh, moved locations. And essentially, um, from what we see, or from what the records suggest, the site was abandoned. Now, I have some lots of lots of questions about this, of course. Um, we, we know that it was there was no other occupant, official occupant on the site, but we can't we can't really say it was abandoned. Um, I say D, D and D because it was uh, basically a demolition because uh, most of the buildings we know were uh, raised at that point. Um, and ultimately there was um, some development because um, by 18, 1915, of course, we see the new Burgoyne Bridge. Um, and of course, looking at um, certainly further um, uh, dumping uh, at the site as a result of our archaeological field work last summer, um, we, uh, it's certainly plausible that um, the site was used as a dumping uh, location and uh, which would explain some of the materials we were finding in one of our excavation areas uh, along the creek. Um, so whether the site was abandoned or just repurposed for a number of other um, processes and um, applications, um, I think we still have a, quite a lot to fill in on this period. But this evening, you'll see quite a few of the objects um, from the site that characterize this um, period and which are quite exciting. They did, do tell us a, a great deal about Edwardian and um, late, Victor late Victorian Edwardian um, St. Catharines. So um, again, we'll get to that in a bit. 
bit. Of course, by 1932, um, the descent, well, the 1930s, the descendants of the Shukluna family sold the site to the city of St. Catharines, and the ship basin was actually filled in shortly thereafter. Of course, the site was later used by the sea cadets, um, and we've got some great imagery of the sea cadets uh, practicing um, a number of drills on the property from the 1840s. Um, we also, of course, I remember in my early days visiting the site uh, where there was a small uh, trailer uh, positioned on the site as one of the sea cadet buildings. Um, but um, at least certainly by the 1950s, the city is building modern, modern uh, infrastructure on site, um, including maintenance sheds, and by 1974, the wonderful pink fire training tower. Um, certainly by the, you know, by the 2000s, we then see, of course, the new Burgoyne Bridge uh, constructed, and it was actually with the new Burgoyne Bridge development in 2014, um, the excavation for the bridge footings revealing a significant amount of historic material and it was the impact from the construction that led me to resume my work at the shipyard and to seek funding from SHRC to enable the excavation of this nationally significant site. So of course we have to have a, uh, a visit from our dear shipbuilder um, and just a brief biography for those who haven't caught the uh, previous lectures by me. Um, Certainly, Shuglin was born in Malta in 1808 and, and later emigrated to Canada in the 1820s, working in Quebec and New York before settling in the Niagara region. He first developed his skills as carpenter uh, under his father at Valletta, constructing ships for the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. After working in the Atlantic trades for a short time, he later took jobs at shipyards, building sailing and steamships, and later boats for the Erie Canal. He then served as an apprentice to a Youngstown, New York, a shipbuilder, um, where he was trained in drafting before receiving an invitation by local businessmen, Henry Middleberger and William Hamilton Merritt, to set up his own shipyard uh, in St. Catharines in 1837. Uh, with the passing of Russell Armington, of course, uh, the property on 12 Mile Creek um, would become a key location, um, uh, was, was already a key location on the first Welling Canal, and positioning 30-year-old Louis uh, to situate his skill and enterprise and support shipping and trade over the next 40 years. Shaklina was an innovative and industrious businessman. Um, he was a shipbuilder, ship owner, uh, city councillor, philanthropist, and as importantly, a citizen of St. Catharines. He was admired and appreciated for his skill and goodwill and was frequently mentioned in contemporary papers and other representations highlighting his historical importance to Canada. It's that legacy which we are trying to capture with this project and which makes this study ever more important. Uh, the archaeology, of course, is uh, a testament to the man and his business and, and what he contributed to Canada. Of course, he's credited with building over 150 ships and infusing nearly $200 million into the Canadian economy. Um, demand for skill led to a workforce at the yard of up to 60 men um, per job and the establishment of a dry dock and the yard, at the yard's height between 1846 and 1877, where he was launching between five and seven ships per year. In this very now quite famous, I suppose, for the Shikluna shipyard, uh, 1864 photo, um, you know, we with the amount of time that we have for this evening's presentation, this really captures um, the breadth of his shipbuilding, certainly in his heyday. Um, with 
uh, uh, four ships um, under construction in the yard. The Perseverance, the propeller, which uh, would have been launched on July 6, 1864. Um, she was built for the grain trade. Um, unfortunately, she was lost by fire in New York in 1868. So she didn't have much of a, she didn't have a great long career, but in any case, um, her role uh, within the bulk cargo uh, trade was, was critical. Uh, the Enterprise, which is, uh, so, Sorry, the Perseverance is the vessel to, at the back behind the building, um, the Enterprise um, in front of the building uh, on the left hand side. And um, this propeller, of course, again, was uh, had an incredibly long career, uh, having been launched in 1864 and having um, continued in service of the bulk trades until 1917. Um, she had been later renamed the Norseman and um, ultimately had performed a great service um, over that uh, duration. Um, so again, some of his career ships having very, very short career, very short and sometimes quite fiery career, and others having quite successful, lengthy and um, quite ambitious careers. Um, so the another vessel here, the Samson over to the right, um, which uh, also unfortunately was um, uh, taken by fire in 1894 uh, when she was docked at the Sioux. Um, but she, as a tug, of course, would have been critical in the roles along the canals and, and further afield, um, towing vessels, aid, uh, coming to the aid of vessels. Um, and eventually, in the later period, tugs were, of course, used to tow a line of up to five or six canalers, um, making them more of an economic uh, value uh, rather than paying men to sail them by towing them with one steam uh, ship or propeller, um, you were able to get uh, a lot more, shall we say, bang for your buck. So ultimately, um, in the foreground, we see the Valletta, um, a beautiful uh, and very typical canaler of the period, um, sailing canaler of the period. Um, this barkentine was um, on, the, on the Chicago trade and would be carrying anything from grain to uh, corn. Unfortunately, docked at the Port of Chicago in 1871, she again succumbed to fire as a result of the great uh, fire uh, of Chicago. So again, we're looking at a number of ships here in the foreground under varying stages of construction. And it really gives you a sense of the activity and the um, encouragement um, to study a site like this with the number of ships and the number, a number of uh, industrial activity going on on the site. We are reminded of just how important and how valued it was to St. Catharines and to Canada um, during the 19th century. So archaeology of a uh, historic shipyard, um, what we know is that what we are going to find evidence for are any one of these types of buildings. Of course, um, we are uh, working on two of those right now, the boat manufactory, which uh, produced base, small boats um, and related equipment. And of course, the laborers' houses to the south of the main shipbuilding complex, um, where Shikuna housed a number of his workers. So this is why we are so excited. There is an expanse of uh, structural um, evidence for the shipyard itself. And then, of course, to document the process of shipbuilding is part and parcel of what we will be doing. So what happened in 2019? <laughs> um, of course, we, with our very capable crew, who you'll see in a moment, 
um, managed to excavate a, uh, a large, um, uh, three large sections of the site and encountering 4,000 artifacts um, from household uh, to uh, domestic uh, material to building materials, uh, industrial materials. Um, again, such a range of, of, of refuse um, and critical to our understanding of, of certainly the later period of the shipyard, but uh, also the later settlement of the site. Of course, we managed to do this in 22 days. So the, ex the actual field work took place between July 15th and August 18th, um, but between wind and we weather days and um, other requirements for our uh, field school, our historical archaeology field school, uh, we managed 22 full days on site. Um, the actual uh, combination of hand and mechanical excavation was undertaken uh, to a maximum depth of between 60 and 80 centimeters, um, which was achieved across uh, all three areas. So that was quite an accomplishment in such a short period of time. Uh, and we had very, 15 very brave crew members, all of which uh, receive extra gold stars um, for their hard work, and especially in the early days of uh, working on the um, uh, Operation Area 1, which was rather uh, a bit of a mud pit. Uh, welcome to archaeology. Um, and, uh, and of course, um, in the heat and uh, the quick dis disassembling of the site when we saw storms coming, again, they were an amazing field crew. Um, uh, by the way, I wanted to point out here, we are using um, the wonders of Colleen Beards, uh, who's a librarian emeritus at Brock, uh, our sure co-applicant and very much a map whiz, um, using her maps to, to visualize um, this. And I recommend uh, looking at the uh, URL situated below field crew uh, if you'd like to see more and layer uh, different periods across the site. It's a great map program and again we'll be using it um, more effectively in future as we progress. So this was our very uh, able and active uh, crowd, uh, or at least uh, some of them, um, uh, for the project and for the duration of the project. Uh, of course, we were running it as a field school, uh, all the while also providing an opportunity uh, for community archaeology to involve members of the public um, who had previously had archaeological training uh, with our, our dig. Um, again, we had so many different uh, layers to the project from uh, our original launch with the um, shovel ceremony to our open days, which allowed the public to come and visit us. Um, it, was, it was a whirlwind, it really was, but it was exciting and we accomplished so much. So for you out there, my, my, uh, my weary crew, or perhaps more rested now, um, thank you, because we, we, this project wouldn't have happened without you. Um, so, of course, a few snapshots of the actual dig, and then we're going to go into talk about um, certainly some of the materials from the site. Uh, excavation work, of course, uh, at OA3 um, up in the upper left corner, our operation, which is, of course, a boathouse, which uh, I failed to mention. Um, we can see intact structural posts along the line, um, which, again, really bode well for preservation uh, for this site. And uh, as you'll see from one of the objects, um, it, it impresses upon us the potential of uh, conservation on this plot of land. Uh, our OA1, um, which were the laborers' dwellings up in your upper right-hand uh, 
picture up in the upper right hand corner. Um, and again, um, providing again an opportunity to have a, an examination of one of the houses at least um, uh, that were situated on the property. Uh, amazing crews uh, screening away um, fines and uh, helping to make uh, sense of the uh, piles and piles of dirt. Um, and of course, our wonderful crews, both from the library, the volunteers from the library and our research assistants who aided us um, to process the fines. Uh, again, an exceptional team all, who worked together to make this a reality. Of course, when we look at historical archeology, span it's not just about the artifacts. Um, the value of historical archaeology is that we use a range of sources, documentary sources, historic maps, ships plans, individual biographies, company records when they uh, are, are available, to more fully reconstruct how shipbuilding and shipping um, impact the local historic landscape. Unfortunately, there are few records regarding the shipyard, um, regarding the business affairs at the shipyard. Uh, we've been fortunate to have access, uh, thanks to the St. Catharines Museum, in fact, um, to the James Norris papers, which have uh, provided at least some uh, information about um, the shipyard and some of the receipts from the shipyard that were held within the accounts uh, for, the, for James Norris. Um, also, the Na National Archives in Canada holds a number of documents relating to construction of uh, defense um, uh, ships, um, such as gunboat, such as a, a gunboat that um, Shuklina was commissioned to build. So there are a wealth of resources that we have, um, and of course, we're reading landscapes, we're reading objects, and they themselves are helping us to better understand the complex um, of the site and site area. Of course, an important aspect of what we are doing is connecting. Um, we are connecting um, what we find in St. Catharines on a global scale. So for example, um, the upper left-hand picture shows the, uh, uh, the elder works at Cobridge in Stoke-on-Trent, um, which housed uh, Henry Alcock, um, a potter there um, from 1861 to 1910. Um, and when, of course, these potters um, were sending, of course, their goods off to uh, the other end of the world, they were shipping them off onto small canal boats, um, which would make their way up the Trent Mersey to ports such as Liverpool, where then they would be shipped on ocean-going vessels uh, to places such as either Montreal or Kingston, where they would then be um, sent aboard a canal ship, uh, especially if they were transiting the Welland Canal, um, and ultimately ships such as Shakuna's Propeller, uh, Propeller America, was one such uh, ship on that run, uh, transporting earthenware um, in its cargo um, during the 1860s. And then of course, um, for the benefits of the local occupants or the local um, uh, citizens of St. Catharines, um, particular wares that would appeal to their, in, their interest in um, uh, the ceramic patterns, or in this particular case, of course, um, various, various sub, uh, subject material relating to, um, uh, of course, um, oh, its use in as a, uh, oh, I've just forgotten the name. Can you imagine that? Oh, um, oh well, let, let's just say for an evening, your evening duties anyway. So let's leave it at that. <laughs> and Kim, then of course- Kimberly, sorry? do you need a pot? 
Ah, thank you. That name just escaped me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, and then, of course, um, from chamber pot um, to archaeological artifact, which, of course, is the best part of it. <laughs> I say so as an archaeologist, of course. Um, but again, we see this, uh, these objects, and we have to consider the larger spans of their histories and where they come from and how they've gotten to where they are. So... Of course, um, when we look at some of the early period of material that we located on site, um, we come across a number of different patterns and uh, including Thomas Furvell, um, uh, who operated uh, a pot uh, pottery in Cobridge between 1851 and 1967. He, like many others, would eventually be subsumed by Wedgwood uh, later on. Um, and ultimately this particular pattern um, was quite interesting. It stumped me for quite some time. I actually reached out to the potteries. Uh, if anyone wants to look at the potteries and all the different prints, I would recommend you go and visit thepotteries.org. Um, in fact, you will see this particular piece uh, on there, on their website. So we, we're famous, of course. <laughs> um, it presents an opportunity to share our information uh, with them. And, uh, and again, they've assisted us um, with a couple of identifications. Um, we look to different types of transfer prints uh, as, uh, as representative of particular choices and tastes of the period. In the scenic vignette um, uh, up in the upper right-hand corner, uh, which again dates to approximately 1832 to 1847. And then uh, located down in uh, sorry, located at Operation Area 1 um, by actually none other than Alan Slakta uh, was this lovely piece of blue edgeware, um, uh, again, dating between 1847 and 1884. So we've got a real span of, again, Victoriana um, on the site and, again, uh, a few other objects, which I'll show you here. Uh, we found three patterns from the Meakin um, uh, potteries, uh, from both Alfred and his brothers, um, uh, Jane G. Meakin, um, which again provide us an opportunity to look at this particular pattern as it's seen over time, preferences for patterns by a particular pottery um, and their export trade. Um, it becomes an important part of our understanding of material and um, preferences within uh, Victorian St. Catharines and certainly the later Edwardian period. Um, certainly we're looking also at um, the nature of production, distribution, con consumption when we're looking at materials. So for example, uh, Wooden Sons, who produced uh, a number of uh, patterns for the firm of Gowans, Kent and Company, a wholesale distributor in Toronto, um, who manufactured for a lot of the hotels and shipping lines um, within the Great Lakes. So he really had uh, a period where he flourished um, doing so, where uh, the ceramic would be sent over to him. They, they would put the individual stamp for the um, specific uh, line or hotel, and then they would export that to um, the specific location. Um, again, this particular piece that we found in Operation Area 3 down by the boathouse uh, was, of course, uh, a fantastic day. I remember that. And, um, and ultimately, it indicates um, some of the clientele uh, where some of these ceramics were um, uh, employed. And of course, how can we forget about that old boot? Um, one of the terrific uh, finds of last year was, of course, this really rem remarkably preserved uh, 
lace-up, either a youth or a lady's lace-up boot manufactured by Goodyear. It, it dates circa 1898, um, but it, more importantly, it illustrates the preservation on site and the potential for un uncovering other key organic materials. Um, you know, a few of you uh, are waiting on a particular ship, so this in itself bodes very well for the preservation of timbers and other uh, organics. Um, and again, it, it also stresses some of the tastes, um, some of the uses um, in terms of fashion and clothing um, within St. Catharines of that period. Um, the wonderful branding of Goodyear is very fortunate and uh, was very recognizable uh, from its removal from site. Of course, everybody loves a before and after. Come on. <laughs> So a few of the finds that I've done a sort of before and after for, uh, the first was a, a porcelain oyster plate um, that was produced in Austria um, by a company called Merkelsgrun Merkel, <laughs> and stamped with this green clover. Uh, the clover back stamp was used between 19, 1912 and 1918. So we have a really fine timeline for this um, piece of ceramic. Uh, again, um, what of course, not only does it tell us about this, what the preferences were in the ceramics, but of course, what they were eating. Um, so the wonders, we did find a number of shells on site, mussel shells and an oyster shell. So uh, again, um, we get an idea of the diet of uh, the occupants, um, certainly within both the laborers, house, uh, laborers houses, but also perhaps um, within the shipyard context. Um, the second uh, image, of course, is a wonderful Pons cream um, milk glass container. And of course, Pons was developed uh, as a product, um, as a company um, in the US in 1846 and became the world's first skincare brand. Um, uh, of course, the importance of the this Pons cream was that it didn't require uh, refrigeration, which helped also, of course, to enable the beauty of uh, St. Catherine's ladies um, to retain their grace, softness, and femininity um, as we start to see their changing roles during the Edwardian period. And of course, you can still buy ponds today, which, um, you know, it's always a bit amusing when the same product that you found on your archaeological site is still in, in circulation. Uh, and of course, the next piece here is uh, a example of depression wear. So depression wear essentially was uh, glass, you know, was basically glass that was cheaply produced. Um, but companies such as Anchor Hawking, which produced this piece um, in the Mayfair pattern um, and as an open, basically handled serving bowl, um, were important because they allowed those who were suffering through the depression um, to still have beautiful wear. Um, they would be able to reach out to different uh, sections of the uh, community and um, still be no more than a cost of a loaf of bread, about a nickel. Um, and it would be a cheerful reminder that you know things weren't always perhaps so bad if you could serve in such a beautiful bowl. So again, these were a few of the objects that we were able to ascertain um, specifics on. Um, there were, of course, many others which uh, tell us the story of uh, Edwardian in a medicine cabinet. So for example, um, uh, Crucian salt containers, which were a mixture of salts and citric acid used for a digestive cleanser, mentholatum, um, actually, which the company is just in Fort Erie um, and settled in about 1905 down there. But um, 
mental atom was, of course, used as any number of uh, ways to um, improve health. Um, uh, again, um, applied and um, for first aid and so forth and so on. Uh, and of course, one of the very cool objects that we did find was this shaving cream uh, uh, tube, and it was still rolled up. <laughs> So again, it's not only showing the process of what we do when we're actually maybe trying to get the toothpaste out of the toothpaste roll, um, but again, also shows a very early product by Rexall Drugs. Um, again, this would have been probably in around 1905, 1910, um, but again, demonstrates the wide reach of Rexall when it, um, uh, the Union United Drugstore is basically uh, became a cooperative and helped to produce and mass manufacture different products. So uh, very quickly run through those objects, but uh, again, a real taste of what's to come. And they are certainly only a fragment of uh, the material that I'm working through. Of course, what are we doing as we move forward? The Shuklana Shipyard, we will continue, of course, in operation areas one, two, and three, uh, and hopefully um, be able to extend those areas um, with permission of the city. We do plan to look at the 12 um, through both underwater and uh, terrestrial archaeological approaches. Um, again, uh, much of the relics of uh, the shipyard and of course of the use of the 12 will be vital uh, to telling the story of um, this important river and its um, use during the industrial period. And of course, we're gonna be looking at the Trucklinder dry dock, um, which again, through geophysics and hopefully later test excavation, we can open up a, a little bit more information about the construction of the dry dock um, and about the uh, Shukluna's complex there. Um, this summer, we're working towards completing uh, our well and canal registers. I'm taking volunteers, so anybody who wants to do a little transcription, you are very welcome to join us. Um, they are the most value, one of the most valuable pieces of information about the well and canals, um, telling us about the goings and comings of ships. Uh, about the cargoes, where they're from, and where they're bound. Um, it's a, it's an exciting, and you know, I. History is not boring to me, so clearly I'm I'm a willing subject. But oops, sorry. Um, see, I got so excited there. <laughs> uh, but these really are—they tell so much about uh, St. Catherine's history. Um, and of course, uh, Lock Three, just located uh, in the lower right-hand corner, is where these remarks were taken from. Um, and a little sort of canal or doodles uh, up in the upper right-hand corner that was held in one of the register books. Um, again, it's a, it's a wonderful record that will complement our work. Um, and of course, we are running an online program. Uh, so we have taken our field school and uh, again, compacted it into an online uh, forum. Um, so you, those who took our field school, some of them are actually joining us again uh, on this course. And what they will get from it will be more on the background to the archaeological legacies of Niagara, um, not only the methods, but also more on the historical source material, um, built heritage uh, methods, and other aspects of the environment and, and material culture. Um, it's exciting. It can be done at home. We are still taking students, so sign up, folks. Um, let me know if you uh, have any issues, but we can uh, try and get you sorted. And introduce you to our fabulous uh, 
university department um, um, administrative assistant friend Math, who will get you aboard uh, in, in record record time. I'm I'm hoping. <laughs> Um, so, of course, uh, this work is never done alone. It takes a cadre of many, many people um, and many committed individuals. So, uh, again, a call out to those of you who've joined us this evening and, uh, of course, to those here on the list. Um, we had great support from Brock University and also from our community sponsors who, again, made this happen. Our, our um, grant funds alone could not have supported the work. Um, we definitely need community support for this project for it to continue. So thank you to everybody who actually made that, uh, made last summer happen. Uh, my only regret is, of course, we're not out there this year, but it will happen again, I promise you. So if you would like to learn more about the project, um, please, uh, we are going to relaunch the website, I promise you, by the end of August, uh, and it'll have all sorts of blogs from last year's field course and images. Our timelines will be uh, a bit more worked out. Um, of course, we have a uh, Facebook page, Archaeology of a 19th Century Shipyard, and our Instagram account. Um, and of course, if, if you would, in fact, uh, like to volunteer, um, contact uh, me at shipyard.brocq.ca or of course reach out on Twitter. So that is uh, me done. Um, ooh, and a little over time too. No, it's <laughs> fine. <laughs> not at all, not at all. Thank you, let me find my video, there we go. Thank you, Dr. Monk, that was, I'm <laughs> so glad that I was muted because there were so many enjoyable stories and, and so many anecdotes that I was laughing <laughs> for. Oh, good. <laughs> so, well, I could talk on and on and on, and it was really difficult to choose what artifacts to share, but uh, hopefully that gave a sense of a few of the sort of interesting ones. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm just going to try and, oh, can you can sure. you um, just press stop sharing? Oh, yeah, I sure can. And then it'll uh, just be SR, oh, maybe, yeah, yeah. Uh, hmm. Hold on, uh, oh, okay. Um, hmm. uh, hold on, I'm trying to find this. Ah, here, let me, nope, maybe not. Hmm. Don't know if that's done it or not. I don't think so. Okay. Uh, mm. That's okay, we can just continue. It's just that it's one screen at a time. I'd rather have us both up. Um, okay. So if you go to sh share screen, um, maybe it's me. Yeah. Share screen I, uh, and then stop share. Maybe it's at the top of your screen. It might be at the top of your screen. Hmm. Um, hmm. We were doing so well, Adrian. It's all right. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> ah, um, exit full screen. I don't see a stop recording, That's but right. um we'll just we'll leave it, we'll leave it like this. Okay. Um right. so while we just uh there are some questions coming in, and I'm going to um I'm going to give them some more time to, because there's a bit of a lag to ask some questions. So folks, go ahead and ask your questions. Um, and I'm going to uh, just uh, quickly do a little bit of a wrap up. And um, Kimberly, I found a, a really fun newspaper article you will really enjoy. So as a teaser, everybody stick around because oh, okay. um, there's, there's a funny story about poor Louis Shikluna that I want to share. Oh, from, no from 1863, yeah. Um, okay, so thank you very much for everyone for attending tonight's lecture. If you have any questions about uh, tonight's lecture, you can post them in the comments. Um, as I mentioned, I'm just gonna try and 
Uh, oh, here we go. Share my screen. There we go. Let's see if that, I think that probably, all right, Kimberly, can you see my screen now? I think so. I can, yeah. Awesome, all righty. So just as a reminder, everybody, we have some other lectures coming up uh, in the next three weeks. So uh, Dr. Carrie Cronin will be here to talk about her talk, Racetracks and Runaway Carriages, Life with Horses in 19th Century St. Catharines. And that's mm -hmm. going to be very enjoyable. Um, <laughs> and then we'll have uh, myself, I'll be back to talk about Lost and Historic Architecture in St. Catharines. And then, uh, and that's on June 23rd. And then on June 30th, um, Kathleen Powell will be back to our curator to talk about the city's memorials uh, entitled with her talk entitled Holding the Torch High, Remembering War in St. Catharines. We've had a lot of significant war anniversaries recently, so that will be a really interesting uh, discussion of some of the memorials in the city. Um, and then after that, again, we're going to take a bit of a break from the lecture series. Uh, it's a lot of work, as I'm sure you all appreciate and understand. Uh, but don't worry, we'll be back in the fall with more great topics and some special guests. So please stay tuned for uh, our social media channels for more information. And maybe we'll be back again with Dr. Monk after after your summer course, you might have more to report. I know you're not out digging, but you might have more research to report. So we'll have to have you back oh. to give us an update. Sounds good. <laughs> um, and then also, uh, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget our two podcasts, Museum Chat Live and One Hour in the Past. You can catch our podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And in fact, a new episode of One Hour in the Past will be out this Friday. It's about the family compact. So that's a very interesting political discussion of uh, Kathleen and I's research that we only have one hour to complete our research. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. Um, I'd also like to remind everyone to give us a like and a follow and, a, and also a like and a follow to all of um, Dr. Monk's social media as well. So we're on Facebook at St. Catherine's Museum uh, and then also on Twitter and Instagram at, at STC Museum. And of course, most of our material lives on our blog, stcatherinesmuseumblog.com. So while we have, uh, just waiting for a few more questions, hopefully, um, but I wanted to share this really neat anecdote with you um, because during my research in the strike for the strike material, I came across this newspaper article from 1863, from the Evening Journal um, in 1863, October, 1863. So here's what it reads. Accident. We are sorry to learn that Mr. Louis Shikluna, the eminent shipbuilder, was thrown out of his buggy last evening oh, yeah. near the cemetery on his return from Niagara. Have you heard this one before? Okay. <laughs> That's good. I'll, I'll finish reading it for everybody. Where he had been to purchase timber for the new steamer he is going to build for Captain Malloy and sustain some serious... Uh, but not fatal, not <laughs> fatal injuries. His face and side were bruised, but not his, uh, but not, no bones were broken. And so my question for you is, did, was it actually being, was the ship actually being built for Captain Malloy? And do we maybe know which, could we sort of guess? The you could probably, yeah, I could probably look into our, uh, our database on, on Shakuna ships and, and, uh, and ascertain that fairly soon, but uh, yeah, not immediately, not tonight, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's okay. But in my head, it's interesting because mm -hmm. that picture of the shipyard that we were talking mm -hmm. about, that's 1864, is that correct? It is, yeah. So it's possible, October 1863, maybe he was 
uh, bringing some wood back for one of those ships that was in the shipyard. That would be so cool. Very, very, very possible. (laughs) (laughs) I like to imagine him too as a sort of a hands-on kind of guy. A lot of the... um, but he's in that picture. I forgot to point out he's in that picture, by the way. Oh, is he really? Yeah, he's on the um he's standing on the deck of the Samson. Let me see. Um, I have that picture in my slide too. Yeah, it's such yeah. a yeah, there you go. There you go. So he is right up here, right up in the bow. Uh so the sorry, the image the image of the um the Samson the tug, which is on the far oh. right. Okay, let me see. The, right this right there. Yep, that's the one. Oh yeah, so gosh. He's, yeah, so he's up there. That's incredible. Checking, checking, checking the workmanship, making yes, sure that uh, that you know fair pay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and I, I, it's it's hard to um, it's hard to reconcile that sort of the the um, the you know capitalist of the time period. He wasn't like that at all. Um, from every description that we have about him, he wasn't sort of a a hardline capitalist or anything like that. Um, so it's really hard to reconcile the, okay, it's really hard to reconcile the, um, you know, that sort of evil mustache twirling capitalist with the the man who fell off his wagon on his way oh, back from yeah. Niagara on the Lake, you know, like poor, he, poor Mr. Shikluna. <laughs> I get the idea he was very fair, but you know, he also knew the value and craftsmanship that he was putting out. And actually, in the in the correspondence um, that I'd mentioned earlier, with, uh, that's held at the National Archives, um, in which they are trying to bargain, um, uh, the, the government is trying to bargain with him to build a gunboat. And they're not having any of it. They, they think, well, so-and-so down, you know, down the river can build it for so, you know, so much cheaper. Um, so, yeah, it, it, anyways ultimately I think they did go with him but it was uh, not without some terse uh, letter writing between Shakluna and the government because he actually had if they had to sort of meet a particular deadline he had to to avail himself of the materials and the men and he needed to set that in uh, a schedule so and, and I mean he, he was a success for a reason right most successful shipyard on the Great Lakes in the time so of course he was a you know he's gonna do what he's got to do um that's hilarious to uh i can just uh, again i can just imagine some of these personalities we do have a couple questions um okay so uh james asks uh the artifacts shared today were mostly chinaware can you give us a sense about other categories of items you recovered so, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we did find, uh, of course, industrial materials, build uh, bricks and nails. Oh, my God, the nails. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, we found um, uh, other, other materials uh, that would have been used for equestrian uh, use. Uh, so we found some uh, leather bridalry uh, among um, the finds in OA3. Uh, yeah, OA3. Uh, we found a lovely figurine, um, again, which was exported from Germany, again, demonstrating these wonderful global connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and this little figurine uh, dating to about 1900 uh, would have been on the counter of a, you know, a refined lady um, used as a pincushion or as a tea cozy. Um, oh, I found a thermometer, um, a mercury thermometer. Um, I'm always amazed that glass survives 
you know, when it's sort of thrown into a pit with all sorts of other things. But uh, but three quarters of this mercury thermometer uh, produced by the Fakney, Fakney uh, company um, down, I think, in New York, Watertown, New York. Anyway, so that, um, again, was among the finds. Uh, tons, again, of course, ceramic made up a huge quantity of the assemblage, but we found uh, glassware, found uh, the Niagara, oh, what is it? The Niagara um, uh, Soda soda Company, I think. Anyways, it, again, other types of bottleware, um, uh, Vicks Vapo Rub, um, so a 1920s Vicks Vapo Rub uh, salve. Um, uh, and yeah, I think I made a mention on our Facebook site early in the pandemic about, of course, um, the use of these um, in, with the Spanish pandemic and how they really they sold out because everybody was putting it on them, hoping that it would stay, you know, stay the uh, virus. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, what else? Let's see. Yeah, 4,000 4, artifacts. Yeah, 4,000 4, artifacts. I mean, it just the list goes on. But again, the between the organics, we found uh, coins, we found some cutlery, but from a later period, probably 1930s, 1940s. Um, of course, we found just a lot of refuse too. They've been dumping on the site for years. And with that comes a lot of mixed context material. Uh, found pellets, um, uh, fertilizer pellets on OA1 in the uh, laborers' houses, which again, first uh, when you first looked at it, it, really did look like glass beads, and so there was some excitement felt. And oh, uh, fertilizer beads, oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, it was, I mean, just the just the quantity of finds and the diversity of finds and the different patterns of ceramic. Uh, again, it's. Really, it was exciting. I didn't expect it to be quite so, uh, quite so, um, in our first season because it takes time to obviously get to depth and to, uh, of course, excavate um, um, the material that would have been corresponding or contemporaneous with the site. I'm glad you did mention in your talk too that the leather boot um, sort of gives you, as an archaeologist, a good sign about. Um, that maybe the crossing fingers, the condition of the hull that may be, you know, what is it? Is it 20 feet down or so? Uh, pro probably, probably. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, so everybody cross your fingers then. Uh, um, exactly. Cross your fingers indeed. That, that's um, so interesting to like think mm -hmm. about organic material that way. And um, so that's, that's really cool. Now I have a, just a quick question and I think that's about it. We're going to wrap up unless you have anything else. But my, my one question about what you were talking about with the mm -hmm. garbage was, or sorry, refuse or whatever the technical term is. Um, does it take a lot of detective work to, you know, tell what's garbage and tell what's artifacts? Like how much sifting and processing do you have to do to determine what's artifact and what's garbage? Well, you know, some people call it garbology, the study of garbology, that yesterday's rubbish is today's, you know, you know, valuable find. But um you know, of course, when we speak about the historic period, um, you know, for me, there's a line. And uh, and while our, obviously our contemporary histories, the contemporary archaeology is a valuable area of study, um, certainly um, many of my colleagues are involved in it, um, usually because of certain types of uh, production, um, the materials and the actual um, 
uh, patterns, we can generally tell fairly quickly if it's more historic, of course, or, or a more a contemporary pat pattern. Um, but inevitably, we have mixed contexts when we do this type of work, and we're going to come across a McDonald's straw in combination with an 1840s ceramic shirt. Um, so it's, uh, the, the, <laughs> it's the, the nature of environments and the nature of uh, how sediment, how, how landscapes change over time. So re you really wear a lot of hats as an archaeologist. You do need to know the modern period. I spend a lot of the winter actually researching um, everything from GM Ford songs lines uh, to um, other uh, plastic objects that we found on site that again date to a much later period but were introduced um, in dumping on site. So yeah it, it takes time you know as a, you're a detective you have to look at the historical materials you have to look at the materials themselves and of course there's a lot of web research involved. Unfortunately um, we live in the age of uh, the World Wide Web and, and you know we have access to uh, contacting um, companies to find out about the materials that may have been lost. So it's, um, it's extraordinary. Historical archaeology is, uh, you know, a fascinating area. And uh, hopefully I can introduce a few other people to it over our summer course. Yeah, oh, <laughs> <don't so>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And we'll definitely share all of the information on our uh, panels. And I'll send out the information in the, uh, in the next email out to the lecture uh, folks as well. Great. Thank you so, so, so much, uh, Dr. Munt. That was a fascinating talk. <laughs> um, best of luck this summer with the course. Thank and, you. And uh, yeah, all the best. Thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in. And we'll see you next week for our next chat. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye. Bye. Um, <laughs> Hi, it's Adrian again. We really hope you enjoyed the lecture. If you have any more questions, feel free to reach out to us via our social media channels or at museum at stcatherines.ca. If you enjoy the lecture series, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, or give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Next time on VMLS via podcast, racetracks and runaway carriages, horses in 19th century St. Catharines. The Virtual Museum Lecture Series is presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Wellington Health Centre.